probably have some sort of story about how a drive through took 15 minutes and that was way too long and you've never really emotionally recovered from having to wait that long for the hamburger. Um, or it could be something as serious as maybe a job interview or, or some sort of hiring process where it's been two weeks and you haven't heard anything and you've convinced yourself there's no way I got it. It's just not going to happen. It's been too long. Could be waiting on uh, a, a child, nine months, and, and, and to see this, this child come into the world. It could be 40, 50 years of working and waiting till you hit a point where you can retire and finally enjoy things. What is the longest that you have waited for something? And then the question to follow that up is, how well did you do during that waiting period? How well did you do during that waiting period? Because odds are you probably didn't wait well. We just don't wait well. Uh, there is something about us that wants what we want when we want it. Uh, we want it immediately or as quickly as possible. We do not want to wait. Uh, and then thinking about waiting 400 years for a promise to come true. We would say, well, that's physically impossible, and it is for generations. Uh, but in our text today, we see the faithfulness of the Lord uh, finally coming into play. You see a promise that was given all the way to, uh, to Abraham back several chapters ago, even a different book of the Bible ago, finally being fulfilled after over 400 years. And I want to look at how that promise is fulfilled today in Exodus 19 and talk about a couple of things uh, that kind of come out of that promise being fulfilled that I think were not only good for the Israelite people to hear as they gathered around the base of Mount Sinai, but I think are helpful for us to think through today. So uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 19, we'll read the whole chapter, touch on uh, a few different pieces of it, but Beginning in chapter 1, it says this, On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. And then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Verse 7, so Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. 
have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Verse 12, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. At the sound of the trumpet grew, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. Verse 25. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Let's take a moment and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, help us now as we begin to uh, talk through the words that we have read. I pray that you would help us to understand what is being communicated here. I pray that you would help us to not only understand it, but that you would help us to see the truth in it and apply those to our lives. Uh, that you would help to sanctify us during this time. That you would help us to grow in our relationship with you. All these things we ask in your Son's holy name. Amen. So <clears throat> as a bit of context around this portion of Scripture, Exodus 19 is almost uh, a halfway point in the, the book of Exodus. Exodus 19 is almost this halfway point where you can, you can divide the book. In the first 18 chapters, you see the Lord uh, physically delivering is Israel, physically saving Israel from their time of slavery and bondage in Egypt. Those first 18 chapters deal with not only their bondage, their crying out, uh, Moses being commissioned by the Lord to intercede for the people, Moses being called to go to Pharaoh to let my people go, the plagues, uh, the Red Sea parting, their time in the wilderness. All of those things happen in the first 18 chapters of Exodus and really set the stage for um, what you could think of as a physical deliverance, kind of this physical salvation. But beginning with chapter 19 and moving forward, you get into the spiritual side of things. You get into a spiritual deliverance. Beginning with chapters 19 and really going through 24, you have this focus on the law. You have this focus 
on the law coming from God, God communicating to the people, this is who I am. I'm holy. I'm set apart. And now that you are mine, this is how I expect you to live. And the whole rest of the, the, the book after that, from 25 to really 40, you have information about the tabernacle and how it's supposed to be built. And what you see from all of this is not only does God deliver the people physically, but he begins to, to do a work in them spiritually. And he begins in chapter 19 moving forward to really give the people the whole purpose of why he saved them. And that is so that they could be in relationship with him, so that they could experience a relationship with him, so that they could worship him, that they could do what God had essentially promised they would be doing. So that's kind of the scene that we have in Exodus uh, 19, kind of the surrounding chapters. But when you look at Exodus 19, there's a lot here uh, that seems maybe a little bit confusing. And I think there's always some confusion when you talk about Old Testament law, um, whether it's in the New Testament or it's in the Old Testament. There's always confusion when it comes to the law. Uh, and so we'll talk a little bit about that. But you see in this chapter uh, this kind of frightening scene of the people meeting with their God or being called to come into the presence of their God. Um, and so I just want to look at this scene today and, and talk through a couple of things because even in the very first verse, you begin to see these little reminders of who God is and why that's so important for the Israelite people. Because if you look in those first couple of verses of chapter 19, what does it say? Look at those first four verses. It says, on the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. So they leave uh, Egypt, and after three months of traveling, they arrive at this point in Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai. Israel camped at the desert in front of the mountain. So they make their way to Mount Sinai. They stop before the mountain, and they camp there. And then Moses goes up the mountain. And if you didn't notice in reading this whole chapter, there's a lot of up and down. Moses is 80 years old at this point. Um, I don't think, what are those things called where you sit on the handrail and the, and the car goes up? I don't think they had one of those on Mount Sinai. I mean, he's 80 and he's going up the mountain and down the mountain, up the mountain and down the mountain. There's eight times where he goes up and comes down in this portion of scripture between this chapter, chapters 20, 21, 22. Eight times he's going up and down. So he's constantly in motion. He goes up to God. The Lord calls him from the mountain, says, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. After 400 years in bondage, I don't even know if I can describe to you the physical the mental, the emotional, the psychological uh, strain that that type of captivity and slavery, uh, how that affects a person. And this people group has been under uh, that system, that slavery, for 400 years. Not only that, they have been around Egypt with their belief in false gods uh, and mysticism, magic, They've been just surrounded by all of these little things that have probably caused them over the course of 400 years to forget who God was and what he promised. And so at the very beginning, 
you see God reminding them of a couple of things. And, and when we read it, we don't necessarily recognize it. When you read those first two verses, there's, there's nothing really uh, seemingly spectacular about it. They go, they leave Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai, they camp it. And you say to yourself, okay, what's the big deal? Well, this isn't the first time that you've seen this mountain. You may not recognize it, but in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is, uh, has fled and is in Midian tending sheep with his father-in-law Jethro, he is tending sheep on the side of a mountain. The Bible tells you that it's Mount Horeb. And on that mountain, he encounters this bush that's burning but is not consumed. And as he draws near, he finds out that it's the Lord God and that God has uh, a plan for him. And God begins to instruct Moses on what he is to do. And as he's instructing Moses, Moses in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3 says, how exactly are they going to know that I'm the one who was supposed to come, that I was the one who was supposed to do these things? And, and God tells Moses very clearly, he says, this is the sign that you will, these people will leave Egypt. They will be freed from Egypt and they will come to this mountain to worship me. The mountain described in Exodus chapter 3 and the mountain described here are one and the same. They have different names, but it's the same mountain. So God has already fulfilled a promise in those first two verses. He said, Moses, right now you're alone. Moses, right now the people are in captivity in Egypt. They are enslaved. But you fast forward to chapter 19. Moses is no longer alone. He is uh, joined by the nation of Israel, a, a huge people group now. And not only is he joined by them, but they have been set free. They are at that mountain. And as those last few verses in this chapter tell us, they're being prepared to worship God. So already God is, is, is reminding them who he is, that he has faithfully promised things to these people and that they should never doubt the promises of God because not only is he willing but he's able he was faithful to Moses when he told him I will return these people to this mountain where they will worship and that's exactly what he does so already he's showing himself faithful whether or not they realize it because after 400 years in slavery I doubt they remember all of the promises that were made to Abraham about how God was going to take that people, make them a people for himself, and use those people to reach the world, show the world who the one true God was. After 400 years in slavery, they may not remember that promise, but you can bet Moses remembered this promise. And you can bet that Moses made it clear to the people that our God has already been faithful because he said you would be here freed, ready to worship him, and that's exactly where you are today. So there's these little reminders that begin to combat the lies that maybe they've believed about themselves. Some of the, the psychological and mental and emotional things that have come from so much time in slavery. And, and while we don't understand that type of, of struggle, none of us have ever really been enslaved other than enslaved to sin. But there are little things in everyday life that nag at each one of us. There are little things in everyday life that make us want to doubt the promises of God or who he is or what he said. And after enough time of waiting, 
on certain things in life, we can begin to forget the promises of God just like the Israelite people have done. And there are little things along the way where God is faithful to show you, well, don't forget about this promise. And don't forget about how I've come through with that promise, how I've been faithful, how I've been able, how I've done what I said I would do. So you see this little reminder, seemingly inconsequential when you look at the text. They escaped Egypt and they arrived at a mountain. Doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but it's a sign of God's promises and his faithfulness. But there's also another picture it gives you in those first four verses that really give you a reminder of of who God is to the people of Israel. And it's this picture of uh, an eagle or or being on eagle's wings. In verse 4, he says, this is what you're to say to the people, the descendants of Jacob, which is an interesting name that he would say the descendants of Jacob. Um, You can think about Jacob and and all of the struggles he had in following the Lord, uh, how unstable his faith was, how many times he seemingly had to fight or wrestle with the Lord to be faithful. And the fact that the Lord would refer to the people here as as the descendants of Jacob, just kind of how weak they may be in their faith at this moment. But he tells them, I am the one who, as he says in verse 4, carried you on eagle's wings and brought you up to myself. I've, I've always heard uh, so many different uh, verses of scripture that talk exclusively about eagle's wings, right? And I've never really thought to kind of get behind that picture. What does it mean? Why does it matter? Um, but as I began to look at really what it means, what happens is uh, an eagle will build a nest on a ledge, a really high ledge, and they will make a nest in such a way as to protect those Little baby eagles, I have no idea what they're called, I guess eaglets or something. Um, They will build this nest in a way that these eagles are comfortable, that they can survive, and they will guard that nest. But at a certain point, those uh, children will grow to a point where that once comfortable nest is too small, and it begins to poke, and it begins to prod. And those eagles will, I guess, complain enough that, Mama Bird is just like, all right, well, it's time to fly the nest. So the, the mother will stir up the nest, literally flap wings and, and, and just kind of stir the nest up to where the children are pushed out of the nest and they fall. And as they fall, mom will swoop down. They'll land on the back. She'll go up and she'll drop them again. And she'll go down and swoop up and grab them and pick them back up and drop them again until they learn to, to, to fly until they learn to to use their wings. Um, That is what God is trying to communicate to the people of Israel here. He's trying to say, I am the one who has protected you. I am the one who has cared for you. And you may look at certain events. You may look at 400 years of slavery and say, why? But at every point, I was showing you something that you needed to see. I was showing you how to fly. I was showing you how to trust me. I was showing you how to depend on me. So when he's giving this picture of eagle's wings, he's really communicating this idea of one of, of, of affection, of paternal love, of protection. All of those things are being communicated. 
And if that wasn't enough, you also find out that eagles will put their young on their back and, and move like that so that anything that comes from below has to get through them in order to get to the child. It's that same thing. God is communicating through Moses to the people that every uh, thing that has happened was a part of a plan, that it was for their good, that they were protected, that the Lord was in control, ready to, to dive down and pick them up, whether it was to get them from one spot to another safely. All of it was in God's paternal, loving, caring plan for the people. So in the first four verses, God is coming to a people who may have forgotten about who he is, what he said, how he acts, but he's making sure that they remember who he is and what he's done for them and how he will continue throughout whatever situation it is to be just like that eagle, to protect, to, to show them how to, uh, to fly, to show them how to um, move from place to place in the protection of his wings. So there's, there's a lot happening in those first four verses that act as a reminder to the people, this imagery that is to, to help the people remember who their God is. And it's important for us to stop and think. I mentioned those little things earlier that can nag at us, those little things earlier that can make us doubt who he is or what he's doing. It's important for us to remember who God is. It's important for us to come to his word and see the truth of who he is and what he's done and be reminded that he is in control, that promises that he has made us are true and combat those things that we've maybe for, forgotten and replaced with things that aren't true. He's combating that. So we need to remember who he is and what he's done. And we learn that from his word. So just kind of a reminder to start off in those first four verses. But it quickly moves into verse 5 and forward with what you could think of as a renewal. We talked earlier about 400 years of this Abrahamic covenant finally being, uh, the promise being fulfilled. You can really look at this section, verses 5 through 8, 5 through 9, and really see kind of a covenant renewal. So he tells them this whole thing about, promises fulfilled, how they're at the mountain, how he's watched over them, how he's protected them. And he goes right into verse five and says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people, set before them all the words of the Lord, that had commanded him to speak, the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. In this couple of verses, the Lord describes his people in three different ways. And we'll look at each of those briefly, but he makes it clear. He says, if you follow me, if you obey me, these are things that will be true of you. And I think this is where one of the misconceptions about the law comes in. Because we look at the Old Testament and say, God gave them the law. They couldn't keep the law. They were sinners. That's why they failed. And that's true, but God never really laid out the law as if, hey, you need to save yourself. That was never really how it's laid out. Look, 
Look here at what he's done. In those first four verses, what did he say? He said, I'm the one who's fulfilled promises. I'm the one that's brought you here. I'm the one who's acted like uh, uh, an eagle, who has protected you, who has led you, who has done all of these things. If then, right, one of those if then, now, if you obey me. So he is asking for obedience in light of the work that he has already done. Does that sound familiar? It sounds just like what we find when we speak of, of Jesus and his sacrifice. It's the work that God has already done, and he's asking for obedience in response to that truth. So the law is never really to be presented as, you've got to keep this. Israel, if you'll just get out of slavery. Israel, if you'll just do a little better. Israel, if you'll just make your way to Mount Sinai on your own, then, then I'll do something for you. Then you'll be a treasured possession. Then you'll be a priestly nation. No, he doesn't say that. He says, these are the ways in which I have been faithful to you. These are promises I've kept. This is a work that I have done. In light of that work I have done, I'm asking you to respond to me in faith and obedience. And so here the people of God are described as three different things, but it's in light of the work that God has already done. He's just asking the people to respond and respond as one, a treasured possession. A treasured possession is is really easy to understand. It literally means uh, a special possession of a king or royalty. So you can think of, uh, of a king with this gigantic room filled with all of these treasures, and maybe somewhere in that room he's got one special thing set aside, some sort of something that has sentimental value, or it's special, it's different from all of the other treasures. It's, it's somehow meaningful to him. That's what the Lord is describing the people. You are a special treasure to me. Essentially this, you've been bought with a price. You've been paid for your mind. You're special enough to me. I see enough value in you that I would pay a price for you. And there are a lot of times where the Israelite people probably looked at themselves and say, what value did you see in us? He loves what he creates. And so when you look at this special treasure, he's communicating to them that he loves them, he cares for them, not because of anything they've done or will do or anything that they failed to do, but he loves them because they are his because they are his special treasure and he even goes as far Moses in writing this goes as far as to say the Lord owns everything although the whole earth is mine this God owns everything but out of everything he owns he has chosen this people to do something special with the second thing he says is a kingdom of priests a kingdom of priests every uh, person every follower uh, as first peter says in in chapter 2 verse 9 you're a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you to everywhere all over the world to, to all of the darkest places to show his marvelous light This idea of a kingdom of priests is literally communicating to the people that they have a responsibility because they are his, because they were bought with a price. There are expectations of them. 
there are things that they're called to do. And one of the things that they're called to do is, as a kingdom of priests, is act like priests. To mediate. To be used by God to serve and to minister to others. To show the nations around them who he is and what he's done in this place. So that all those people around the people of Israel can see who he is and what he's done. And again, echoes here for us. We, we think of the Old Testament and think it's somehow different, but up until this point, there's nothing really different about what God has communicated to the people. In the first part, we see him being faithful and keeping his promises. We see him doing a work that only he could do and asking the people to respond, letting them know that they're valued and loved, that he treasures them, that he has a special plan for them. And part of that plan for them is to minister to the people around them so that people can see who God is and then to be a holy nation. Be holy as I am holy. God is set apart. He's pure. And the, the, the point that he's trying to make here is that the people would do the same. That they would put away uh, idols. That they would put away profane things and instead pursue him in that same sort of purity. Again, nothing necessarily new here. But there is a piece that does kind of change things for me, and it's this last section, verses 10 through 25. It's, a, it's the biggest portion of this section. And you see this call for the people to get ready. You see this call for the people to get ready. That in a couple of days, the third day, the Lord is going to come down on that mountain. And when he comes down on that mountain, he is going to reveal to the people what he has called them to do. They will be able to worship and engage he's going to give them the law the ten commandments happened in in chapter 20 all of this is happening but he says first you have to consecrate yourself and the word consecrate just simply means to make holy to clean up so there's this call for the people to respond to what he's done by being a treasured possession a, a priesthood a priestly nation a holy nation, but they have to clean themselves up first. They have to consecrate themselves. They have to wash their clothes. All these things. Look at verse 10. You see that first one, the, the washing of the clothes. Verse 11, right after that, you have um, this idea of, of being ready. Verse 3, you have to stay away from the mountain. Or, excuse me, verse 12, you have to stay away from the mountain. You can't touch it for fear of death. You can't touch anybody who's touched it because they're getting stoned or shot with arrows. So you can't touch them. All of these things are being communicated to the people. Do not go near a woman, verse 15, which sounds like it's one too far, but it's in there. Um, I told myself, I, I, I really tried. I almost asked Jesse, hey, do you want me to keep going in Corinthians? But the thing that stopped me about asking, do you want me to keep going in Corinthians, was he's had a tough job the past couple of weeks because every other uh, message seems like he's got to talk about marriage or uh, relationships between man and a woman or sex and so it's just one of those things where I was like you know what I'll leave that up to him I'll I'll skip that part so I don't have to talk about it and then I end up in this and it's like hey stay away from a woman and I'm like well I have to I feel like I have to explain what's what's going on here so the long and short of it is essentially there was a call for the men to refrain from sexual relations with their wives. That's the 
the, the, the part being implied here is from your wife so that they could turn their minds away from maybe physical desires or, or uh, desires that they had to turn themselves away from those things and focus solely on the Lord. Um, that's kind of what's happening here. But you see all of these kind of lists of things to do. You have to, you have to wash your clothes. You have to, to, to stand here. You can't go here. There are boundaries. You can't go to up to the mountain until the Lord comes down and you have to be clean first and all of these things. And it's at this point where you should say, yeah, this seems different. I get God being faithful. I get maybe uh, forgetting his promises, getting in certain circumstances in life where I can't remember who he is or, or what he's done, but him pointing me back to the truth of who he is, showing me how he's been faithful, showing me the work that he's done in protecting me and caring for me and loving me. I, I get all of that. I, I see all of that. And then asking me to respond to that work and saying, because of what I've done for you, because of who I am, respond to me in faith and obedience. Be a priestly nation. Be an example to others. Live your life in a certain way so that your character and integrity show the world around you that you're different, that you belong to me, and that makes you different. All of that is, is, is something that we can look at and say, yes, that's, that's all part of the gospel picture. But you get to this point, you say, this is different. I've got to get clean. I can only go to certain places. What do we do with, with this section of scripture and I think really you just kind of have this symbolism here of so many things back then when you washed clothes that was like a new start because it happened so infrequently in your travels it was a big deal to wash clothes it was kind of like a fresh start and so here's a group of people for three months have been wandering around the desert you can imagine how dirty they would be so it, it's almost as if God is calling them to, to clean themselves up, to, to get presentable because he's coming down to see them, to focus their hearts and their minds on who he is. So don't see this so much as kind of this, well, there are certain things that I have to do in order to get to God. That's not what's being communicated here. Instead, you could almost take this as they're trying to get ready to meet God in the same sense of that's what we should be doing every Sunday. Now, Yes, of course, you should take a shower. I hope you all have recently. But it, it's not necessarily that. It's, it's more so we should be preparing ourselves for worship. We should be every week preparing ourselves to meet with our God, to hear from him, to come into his presence. So there is a certain aspect of that that demands reverence, that demands awe, a, a fear as many places in scripture will, will, will call it. And here you see fear as in shaking and trembling. Uh, what I mean is fear as in a, a, a reverence and awe, seeing God and knowing who he is and knowing he's set apart and knowing that you are coming into his presence uh, and that that demands uh, to a certain degree a, a certain preparation of heart and of mind. And I think we've forgotten about that. I think we've forgotten about our duties as a priestly nation. I think there are several times where not only do we come into this place unprepared without our hearts and minds being focused on worship, but I think there are many times where we go throughout our week where we are not that priestly nation, where we are not ministering to one another in such a way that we are showing who God is 
to those around us. So the, the challenge of this, this big section here is, is one, to see that there is a, a matter of preparation, that there is a matter of responsibility when it comes to interacting with the Lord. But part two, to see how different this is from what we do now. There are no boundaries on the mountain anymore. There isn't this need to stay away from God. There isn't this need to not draw near to him because we're sinful, because we're dirty, because we um, have yet to be consecrated. None of that is, is, is here anymore, and it's because Jesus has changed all that. We have access to the Father. Now, there still needs to be reverence and awe. There still needs to be preparation when coming into his presence. But we have the ability to go into uh, his presence and go into his presence boldly because he is that father who loves and cares for us. So these things have changed. And the author of Hebrews actually picks this up and picks it up perfectly because the author of Hebrews <coughs> in, a, in a couple of different places but mainly in uh, chapter 12, talks uh, beginning in 18, going through 21, and then again in 22 through 24, talks about the difference uh, of what's happening here. And the author of Hebrews says this, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 12, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words, that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches this mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. The author of Hebrews paints this picture and says, you are not drawing near to a mountain where there are boundaries, where you have to be afraid of God, where you have to be afraid of, of dying in his presence because of your sin, because of your dirt, because of that grime. You don't have to fear that anymore because as they go on in, in verse 22, it says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator, of a new covenant. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear we do not draw near to God as if it is Mount Sinai where there are boundaries where we cannot enter into his presence because of our sin, but instead we have a mediator in Christ Jesus whose blood has made it possible for us to have a relationship with God so that we can approach him as a father, as one who has through Christ Jesus saved us and made a relationship possible, who visits with us, who makes it possible to worship him. We have this access because of Jesus. And there's one piece in, in Matthew 17 that I think kind of bridges all of this. You see this picture in verses 10 through 25 of thunder and lightning, clouds, smoke, fire, all of these things happening on top of Mount Sinai. And in Matthew 17, Matthew describes Jesus taking three disciples going up to a mountain and being transfigured. His face changes, his clothes change, 
he is even uh, enveloped in cloud. And it's almost as if God is saying, the God who met with you on Mount Sinai is here again in the form of Jesus Christ. Now, what was the response of the disciples who saw the things that happened to Jesus? One of them wanted to build houses so they could stay there forever. One of them uh, was, was shaking, was trembling. And the same thing that you see in verse 9, where the Lord says to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. It's as if that is being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. God, on that mountain where Jesus is transfigured, says to those disciples and to all of mankind, listen to him. He is the one who has come to make a way. Listen to him. He is the one who is making it possible for you to have a relationship, to come into a relationship with me where you can worship, where you can experience freedom from the bondage of sin, where you no longer have to fear coming into the presence of a holy God because when that God sees you, he sees the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus has made a way for us. So this whole picture in Exodus 19, it really draws out some core truths that we need to remember. That no matter what's going on in life, no matter if you're waiting for something, no matter if you're missing something, whatever it is in your life that may take your mind off of God and the truth of who he is, make you forget certain things about him. His word and his son testifies to who he is and what he's done. His faithfulness in keeping his promises, his faithfulness in sending his son to die for us, all of those things point to a God who has loved, protected, cared for us. And he calls, in response to what he has done, he calls us to be this people who step into a world, a broken world, and say, we're different. We're treasured possessions, we're holy, we're set apart, but it's nothing that we've done, it's all because of who he is, because of his faithfulness, his love, his care for us, and, and, and knowing that we can come into his presence, that we can worship, that we can prepare to meet him every Sunday because of what Christ has done. So the, the challenge here for us is to take those reminders to look at this, this renewal, this covenant renewal, and see in our own lives what the Lord has called us to do and how he's made it possible through Jesus. So I hope those things um, encourage you. I hope those things help you to think through um, our place, not only in this place, but in the world. Because again, I don't want us to come into this place unprepared. I don't want us to come into this place so focused on our own stuff that we're failing to minister to one another. I don't want us to go outside of this place so forgetful of what he's called us to be that we miss opportunities to show the world that we are different and who has made us different, why we're different. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, as we uh, move into this time of, of, of reflecting on your word, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help us to see your past faithfulness and continue to remind us of who you are. I pray that you would continue to remind us of the call that you've placed in our lives, that we're called to be a kingdom of priests, that we're called to be a holy nation, that we're called to be an example to the world around us, a broken world, a lost world, a hopeless world. Help us to do what you've called us to do and help us to know that it's all made possible 
by Jesus, that we don't come to a mountain where we have to fear being in your presence, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we have access to you, that we can trust you, that we can worship you freely, and that we can continue to do the things you've called us to do because of Jesus' faithfulness and how he's working in our lives. So help us to think through these things. Help us to apply these things to our lives.